You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Sorry to interrupt your conversations, but I'm going to interrupt your conversations. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, and I'm the, I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and just so glad to be able to uh, begin <laughs> our week together. <laughs> simmer down, simmer down. The, uh, so glad that we get to uh, enjoy and start our week together, uh, being reminded of who God is and what He's done for us, worshiping Him and gathering together. We're going to, uh, students, again, so glad that you're joining us. Love that you're here with us. We missed you while you were gone this summer. And those students that are new, uh, we are so glad that you're here with us. Hey, as we get started this message, hey, let, oh, let me ask you a question. You ever been in that situation where uh, it's clear you're supposed to know who someone is? They know who you are, but you're just not, you just can't place them. Like you just, you, maybe you know their face a little bit, but you don't know their name. Like you, like I hate that. Is that not the worst? Like you're at the grocery store, you're at the restaurant, you're walking across campus and that person runs up to you as, as, as if you're like their long lost friend and you're thinking, man, I have no idea who you are. And you pull your greatest Brian Regan. You want to know Brian Regan, the, the, the comedian? He does this whole bit on like you see someone and you're like, hey, yeah. What's up, man? Hey, dude. How are things going, buckaroo? And you're just you know, pulling all that out. And it's, it's just the worst. It's helpful when you know who someone is. It's just, let's just say it. It's helpful when you. One of my favorite stories about not knowing who someone is happened uh, about five years ago. Uh, I was in a fantasy football league with a group of friends, and really they were kind of friends of one of my friends. And I got in, introduced into this league, and it was a league basically made up of people living in central and downtown Austin. And uh, we would play the fantasy football league, but in this league, there was a punishment for coming in last place. And that year, the punishment was whoever came in last had to wear a banana suit and ride his bike to every house in the, of all the guys in the league. There's 11 guys, uh, 12 guys in the league. And, and so uh, the banana suit, I, in case you can't picture what that looks like, that's what it looks like. And so uh, and he had to ride his bike to everyone's house and have a beer with that, with that person. And so um, the guy that lost that year was a guy named Andrew. And I didn't really know Andrew. And so, we, I mean, we had hung out a little bit. Krista, my wife, she had never met Andrew. And so I knew the day that Andrew was going to ride to my house, but I wasn't sure what time because he was trying to hit a bunch of guys' houses at the same, the same time. And so I left early that morning to go to a, a meeting, and I thought I would, for sure I would be back in time before Andrew got there, but I, I wasn't. And uh, he showed up at, at 9 a.m. And so now the... I had a huge husband fail because I hadn't even mentioned to Krista that a guy, a, a, a beer-toting banana man, was going to show up at some point at our house that, that, that day. And so the door, he knocks on the door, and my son, Camp, who was four at the time, breaks the rule. Parents, you all know the rule. You're not allowed to open the door for strangers, right? And so, but Camp thought it was me, and so he opens the door and to see you know, banana man. And Krista is in the kitchen and she sees this happen and she panics. She freaks. Like she runs sprints to the door and just slams it in his face. <laughs> Where there they have a pretty comedic exchange through the door, basically all around the question, 
who are you, right? And so when I did finally show up at home, she, suffice to say, was not too pleased with me. It's, it's helpful to know who someone is. Well, today we're beginning a new four-part series that we're just simply calling Who Are We? And we are doing this series because it's helpful to know who we are. And for those of you who are part of our church, you know, you're committed to Midtown, this, this hopefully will serve as a really helpful reminder about who we are. And for those of you who are exploring Midtown, you're visiting, you're thinking about maybe connecting, we just want to lay our cards on the table, let you know, this is who we are. And so we're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks. Now, usually on Sunday morning, the person who gets up here and does the greeting, as Josh just did, shares our identity statement. Now, it's funny, he forgot to say that this morning, even though I'm talking on this. So, but it's no problem, Josh, you're not fired yet. But, um, <laughs> just playing, buddy. But when they share our, when we welcome everyone, we always kind of state our identity statement. When our identity statement is this, that we are a family loved and served by God and compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. And so if you were to ask us the question, who are we? Who are you as Midtown Church? We would say, this is, this is who we are. That's who we are. Now, here's the thing. I want to be clear about this. Because that might sound a little presumptuous that I could say to this room, this is who we are. Because there's a bunch of different people here, all different backgrounds and all kinds of different stuff. And so for me to say, like, who we are, this is who we are, it might sound more like that's, I'm meaning that in an aspirational kind of way. Like, this is who we want to be. Or perhaps there's a small group of us that say, like, no, we're going to be this. Or maybe this is, like, we look at what we do or what we value, and, and we say, okay, no, that describes who we are. But that's not what I mean, and that's why I can say with certainty and with confidence that this is who we are because of a great gospel truth, a great Christian truth. And that truth is that the way that we actually get an identity the way that we achieve an identity or inherit an identity or give an identity, the way that we get our identity isn't actually by what we do, but it's based on what God has done for us. That the way that we get our fundamental identity, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, it's that it's not something that you earned and therefore God called you something. It's because who God is and what he's done made us something. And then he calls us that, and then we live that out. And when you think about, and when you read in Scripture who God says he is and what he's done, and then who we are as a result, one of the things that we're told is that we are a family because we've been loved and served by God. See, if you want to know what your identity is, and friends, and I just remember going off to college, I don't know how many freshmen are in this room, but we probably could experience, like, you go off to college, especially if college is in a different city, and you're breaking away from your parents and all stuff, and there's this kind of, this big question of, like, I'm going to kind of find who I am, and I'm going to get my, you know, I'm going to see, what, you know, perhaps you've declared already your major, or perhaps you're going to wait a little while on that, and you're like, I'm going to figure out what I'm passionate about, and what, what I, who I am, what I do, and perhaps you're going to, like, make a break from your old city, or from an old group of friends, and kind of start a whole new, and, like, that's a big question, and we all struggle, we all wrestle with, like, how do I know who I am? Well, guys, according to the world, the way you know who you are is that you look at what you do and what you're interested in, what, you know, you know, experiences you have in your culture, and you let those things tell you who you are. That what you do makes you who you are. 
But in the gospel, in the Bible, and what God says in his word, it's the whole other way around. In fact, this is how we form our gospel identity according to scripture. It begins not with what, not, not with what I do, but who is God and what has he done. And then after that, we're told who we are. And it's only when we get to who we are, then, then the next question falls into place, which is, okay, then what should I do? Which, again, is completely opposite of how we normally think about identity formation, isn't it? Usually it's what I do makes me who I am. And then when it comes to God and you, you think God relates to me based on what I've done and who I am. And then that tells me about what he's like. But according to the gospel, it's completely flipped on its head. It's who God is and what he's done makes me who I am. And then that influences what I do. And it's, guys, it's because of that that I can stand up here and tell, tell you who we are when I'm talking about Midtown Church, those in Christ that gather together. We say, we are a family loved and served by God. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. So let's go to a passage. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 today. If you, want to, if you brought a Bible, if you want to grab one on the resource table in the back or pull it on your phone, also have the words for you up here. You can follow along. We're going to be 1 John 4. We're going to pick up in verse 7. In this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to basically, and what I want to encourage you to do, is just to ask these questions. Who is God? What has he done? And who we are as a result? Ask those questions as we read these verses. We're going to be in verse 7 through verse 14 for the most of the part this morning. And so mentally note or perhaps circle in your Bible when you see something that's an answer to any of these questions. Let me read it and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of unpack it. So 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 begins, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, meaning it was made obvious to us. It was, it was, it was revealed to us that love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, meaning the full payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And what a beautiful passage, right? Now, when I was reading it, did, did you catch some of the answers to those big questions? Like when we look through this and we think the question, okay, who is God? Did y'all see any answers there? Who is God? God is, yeah, it's safe. You can talk a little bit. God, God is love, right? I mean, that's a famous statement. Now, just to be clear, that's not a statement that that's all that God is. That's just a statement of God's character. When we ask who is God, we're talking about what God is like. And when we say in this passage, clearly says, God is love. In fact, in verse 7, if you go to the beginning, it says that love is from God. Now, love is from God means that love is sourced from God, or God is the source of love. So God is love, and he is the source of love. Then the second question, okay, so what has God done? In light of who he is, what has he done? Well, in this passage, in verses 9 and 10, and verse 
13, you get a clear description of what God, how God has loved and served us. In fact, and I just think this is fascinating. Not only do you hear how God has loved and served us, but you have each person within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all taking an active role in loving and serving us. Look at, look at what it says here. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That's the big kind of umbrella statement. Here, John says, who's the author of this letter, the you know, disciple of Jesus, he says, okay, hey, let me just tell you how God's love was made obvious to us, how he obviously, how he revealed, how he loves and serves us. Here's how. That God, meaning God the Father, sent his only son into the world. And you want to know how God loves us? God the Father sent his son. God the Father gave his son. That's how he loved and served us. And look, he did that in order that we could have life, not just forgiveness of sins, though absolutely forgiveness of our sins, but so that we could have life. That's how we've been served by God the Father. And look when he did it. Not when we loved him, but before that. We didn't love him, but he loved us. Now, that's amazing. Like, that's an incredible, that's this gospel truth, right? That it's not what we do that makes God treat us a certain way. It's who God is that causes him to treat us a certain way. And since God is love, then he loves us even when we did not love him. He loved and served us. And then look how the Son has served us. The Son became the propitiation for our sins. Again, big, big theological word that just you know, simply means full payment for our sins. And the reason that we needed a payment for our sins is because, again, using biblical language here, when we sin, when we fall short of the glory of God, when we misrepresent what God is like because we were made to reflect his image, and when we fall short of that, there's this, we accrue a debt between us and God. And it's a debt that we can never repay. It's a debt that no matter how many good things we do, that it never washes that away. So there's this debt between us and God that we could never repay because we, live, we failed to live the life that we were supposed to live. But then here comes Jesus, God the Son, to love and serve us by becoming the full payment for our sins. That he served us by living the life that we were supposed to live and then dying the death that we deserve to die. He dies in our place to pay for our sins that we could be forgiven and, again, Go back to the verse 9, have life in him. That's how we've been served by the Son. It's amazing. And then go down to verse 13, where it says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he, God, has given us of his spirit. And so God the Father gives us the Son. God also gives us his spirit. The spirit comes to live within us, to abide with us, to dwell with us, so that we know that God loves us. Each member of the Trinity actively loving and serving us. And so who are we as a result of who God is and what God has done? Well, verse 7 and then again repeated in verse 11, this is who we are. We're the beloved. We're the beloved of God. That we are the dearly loved. Like, do you know that? That because of who God is and what God has done, independent of what you have done, in, in faith in Christ, God says, this is who you are. You're the beloved. 
You are the dearly loved. And not only that, but you're the child of God. You're the beloved child of God. In this verse, this is saying that we're the child of God when he uses this line, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And like, let's not rush past this statement, born of God, and think about it as hyperbole or figurative language, because it's, it's not. John, again, the author of 1 John, also the guy who wrote the gospel of John, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's him. He uses this statement, born of God, in one of the most famous passages in Scripture, John chapter 1, when he's introducing who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. He describes it in this way. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, referring to Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Now, why are we children of God? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And friends, I make that point because this means that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, that when we believe in His name, as this says, receiving Him, that at that moment, you're born, again, Jesus would say in John 3, born again, that you're born of God which means that you become someone new, that you get a new identity, that you are no longer who you used to be, and you are now someone you never were before. In that moment, when you receive Christ, you are a child of God because you have been born of God. And guys, that's great news because here's what identity was apart from receiving Christ. According to Romans 5, our identity was that we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. That's who we were. And yet that passage would go on to say that even though we were enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Whereas John will say in this, that while we did not love God, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And when we believe that, we go from being God's enemies to God's beloved children. That's who you are. In Christ. That we are brought fully into the family of God. In fact, guys, we are brought so fully into the family of God to the point that Hebrews 2, verse 11, one of the most incredible verses in all Scripture would say this. Both the one who makes people holy, speaking of Jesus, and those who are made holy, speaking of us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, can you believe that? Like, I think it's interesting that what, what most Christians feel at least somewhat comfortable referring to God as their father, but hardly ever do we ever refer to Jesus as our brother. Like, there's just something so wild about that statement. It's scandalous, even. But Jesus, where we're apprehensive to call him his brother, <laughs> uh, call him our brother, he is not ashamed to call us his brother's and sisters. But man, that's hard to believe. But because that's so hard to believe, listen to this, Romans 8 tells us that God sends his spirit so that we will have it affirmed in us that he could testify to our own spirit that that's actually who we are. This is what Romans 8 says. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, why? Because he's our father. And co-heirs with Christ, why? Because he's our brother. Because who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you really know who you are? You're the beloved child of God. You're the beloved child of God not because of what you've done, but solely because of who God is and what he has done. That's who you are. That's who we are. And I just have so enjoyed studying this passage this week and oh, just thinking about it, especially how each member of the Trinity had a, had a role to play, initiative, took initiative to bring us into the family of God. It made me think about my uh, favorite moment of my entire life. And that, that's a big statement, like I know, like that's like, but this, I talked about it with Krista, and actually we both decide that our favorite moment of our entire life is the same moment, and it's the moment that we first met Enoch, our adopted son. And that moment, it was incredible, because you see, like we had worked for about two years to make it legally and financially possible for us to adopt Enoch, who was two and a half at the time that we adopted him. And Enoch is from Uganda. And so we had to fly to Uganda to go meet him. And we had never met him before. But when we went to go meet him was also the same time we were to adopt him. So there wasn't like a, a feeling out period. It's like we're there and we're going to adopt him. And even though we never met him and poor guy had never met us. He didn't have any say in it. So he's just like, you know, we had to go along with it. But man, so he had no idea what was going on in the background for two years for Chris and I and all that we were doing to try to make it possible you know, make it legally and make it financially viable for us to adopt him, for him to become our child. And then our other son, biological son, Camp, who was two and a half, Camp and Enoch are two, or, or basically the exact same age, two months apart in age. And so our other son, Camp, we took him with us too. And so Enoch doesn't know he's about to get a new family, new parents, new brother. We show up at the door of this orphanage. We flew for about 24 hours. We drove for about two hours. We finally show up at the door of the orphanage. We knock on the door. We've got all our luggage. We're going to live there for a month or longer. And so we've we got all this stuff. We open, knock the door. Our hearts are beating. <laughs> door swings open. There's about eight aunties right there. They're the orphanage workers. They're right there to greet us. They're in this small little foyer. And one of them is holding Enoch. And she just hands him to Krista. Like right away. I mean, this is immediate. Door opens. Hi! <laughs> We drop our luggage, and we're like, what? Okay, we thought, we didn't think it was going to go down like this. We had this picturesque idea of what this was going to look like. It wasn't like that. And so they say, no, no, go to, go to a private room. So we, we try, he, Krista's got Enoch. We're trying to grab luggage. We go to this private room, and Krista sits down on the side of a bed, with Enoch in her lap, and the poor guy is just wide-eyed. He has no idea what's going on. And we are just, like, really, like really feel that. And we're, we're like, man, we're coming on way too strong. We thought we were going to show up. We're going to be here for a long time. We figured we could just, like, observe him for a day or two and then kind of warm up to him and let him warm up to us. But no, no, we're, we're, he's in a room alone with me and Krista in camp. And so poor guy, his wide-eyed, feeling, you know. So Krista and us, we don't know what to do, but Krista's a lot smarter than I am. So she says, hey, um, camp, I think Enoch's feeling a little scared. You want to say something to him? And Camp walks over. I kid you not. He, he grabs Enoch by his hands. She's, he's sitting in Chris's lap. He grabs him by the hands. 
And, and Camp's favorite movie up to this point is Toy Story. And he's seen this movie about five or seven times over the last 24 hours because we flew for 24 hours. And he grabs Enoch by the hand and he says, You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead, you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed. Just remember what your old pal said. You've got a friend in me. Chris and I are wiping tears out of our eyes. <laughs> Can you believe this? From that moment, Camp and Enoch bonded. They became brothers. And soon Enoch bonded with me and with Krista. And soon over time he began to realize that he had a new family. And that his legal standing and his relational standing was completely different. And friends, it was different not because of anything he had done. He was two and a half. He had no idea what was happening. He had not done anything to deserve it other than exist, and that's a good reason to adopt, but he hadn't done anything uniquely to deserve it. He had, he had not done anything to earn our love because we had, at that moment, had never met him before. But simply by the initiative of our family, each one of us playing our part, Enoch was brought in as our child. Friends, I tell you that story because that is simply a shadow of the bright reality of what God has done for each of you. That is but a hint of the reality of what God the Father, Son, and Spirit have done to bring you in as his child. You are the beloved son. You are the beloved daughter of God. Not because of anything you've done. Not because you deserved his love. But because of who he is and what he has done for you. That's who you are. Do you know that? Is that not incredible? Yes. I love what John says in 1 John 3. Right before the, verse, the chapter before this. He just, like in the middle of talking, he, he just blurts out one statement. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That is who you are. And that is who we are. So guys, we are a family loved and served by God. We are a family because we have been loved and served by God. That's who we are. Now, what follows from who we are is, okay, the, then we live in light of, of who we are. When she gets into the fourth question, okay, so what should we do? And this passage that I read in 1 John is so clear on that. Like 1 John 4.11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. But we're going to talk more about that next week. Because that's the other second, that's the second half of our identity statement. I don't want to get, I don't want to move there yet. Because, friends, we got to sit in this. Like you need, and I need to really grasp that this is who we are. And to, and to spend some time even just thinking about the benefits of being in the family of God. 
the benefits of the truth that this is who we are. And so as before we close, let me just hit two benefits that come with being in the family of God. Two benefits that are laid out for us in this 1 John 4 passage in the verses that follow where I left off. The first benefit is this. That if we're in the family of God, we get to experience familial intimacy and access to God. That we get familial intimacy and access with God. Look what verse 15 says. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Meaning that when you trust that Jesus is your Savior... As this says, confessing that he is the son of God, that's how you enter his family. That's how you're born again. And once you're a child of God, then God comes to abide with you. Repeated four times right here. This is a key word, and this word just simply put, this word means to live with, to be with. If you want to sum this last verse up, it says, like, you know, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God comes and moves in with you. And you move in with God. It's just like when we adopted Enoch, we didn't leave him in Uganda. He actually came and moved in with us. We lived with him and he lived with us. That's what God says. Okay, when you trust in Christ, you're born of God. You're a child of God. And now you live with God. He lives with you. You get to experience this deep intimacy and access to God where you can literally call the creator of the universe your Abba Father or your Dad. So, illustration I love to use that worked better when President Obama was the president because um, he, had, he had young kids whenever he became the first president. Or not first president, I mean, he became the president, his first term. And um, his, you know, his girls were seven and ten when he took the office. And it's fun to think about how, like when President Obama would walk out into the White House lawn, <laughs> if someone were to run at him, they would most likely be shot <laughs> or at least tackled by the you know, Secret Service unless the person running at him was his daughter, right? Where they could just run to him and find him arms wide open with no obstacles in his way because they had special access to him. That when someone wanted to interrupt President Obama, wanted time with him, they'd have to do all kinds of work to get on his schedule and perhaps they would be denied, but his daughters could just walk straight up to him. They had unique access to his ear. Why? Because the most powerful person in our nation at that time was also their dad. Friends, that's what kind of access we have with the God of the universe because he's our dad, because we're his child. Are you enjoying that? Are you experiencing that? This incredible intimacy, this incredible access that you can have with God. That he wants that with you just like any good dad wants that time with his kids I would encourage you, enjoy this in light of who you are, in light of who he is and what he's done for you, that you would enjoy the access and intimacy available to you with God. God, it's incredible. Second thing that we see here as far as a benefit of being the family of God is that we have confident security that can cast out fear. If you keep going to the passage, verse 17 says this, 
by this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Friends, what's powerful enough to cast out fear? What's powerful enough to cast out the fear of judgment? What's powerful enough to cast out our fear of punishment for the wrong that we have done? What's powerful enough to cast out fear of what all that life can bring? To cast out the fear and the worries that we so often live with. The perfect love of God. The perfect love of God is powerful enough to cast out all fear. And when we have confidence in his great love for us, then we can walk around with this statement of saying, no matter what we're facing, I am the beloved child of the sovereign creator and judge of the universe. I have nothing to fear. And we can say it along with King David in Psalm 27, the Lord is the light, my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And we can rest from trying to earn God's love and we can rest from trying to control our lives and we can rest from worry because that is who God is and that's what God has done for us and that's who we are as a result, the beloved children of God. And his perfect love can cast out fear. Are you experiencing that? It's for us. It's available to us because of who he is and what he's done. Brothers and sisters, we're a family. We're a family loved and served by God. I want to help us know that. Know that we know that we know that. So here's my challenge for you. Here's my my encouragement to you this week just to take all that we've just talked about and here's what I would really want to encourage you to do is this I want you to I, I want you to I want to give you a statement it's kind of even a bit of a catechism which is catechism is like this call and response or is this question answer format and here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do every day this week and I really encourage you to do it in the morning while you're brushing your teeth or while you're driving to school or you're walking across campus but you would just take a minute and you just ask yourself this question who am I and then you would answer, I'm the beloved son of God because I've been loved and served by God. You would answer, I'm the beloved daughter of God because I've been loved and served by God. I would encourage you, like, write that down. Take a picture of it. Do whatever you need. But repeat this over and over and over again to where it comes home to your heart that this is who you are if you are in Christ. Who am I? I'm the son or the daughter of God because I've been loved and served by him. This is an amazing truth. And I've prayed all week that God would bring this home to your hearts. And I've prayed all week that God would bring it home to my heart because it's so easy to forget. And I think it's easy to forget because it's hard to believe. Because we know we don't deserve this. But remember, we don't get our identity off of what we've done. 
It's fully based off of who God is and what he's done. And because of that, this is who we are. Let's say it to ourselves. Let's say it to ourselves. Let the Spirit say it, testify to our spirit that this is who we are. I'm going to end this morning by taking communion, as we do every Sunday here at Midtown. When we take communion, we've got the elements in the front and in the back, and you're, you're in, a, in a minute. I'll dismiss you during our worship set. Anytime over the last three songs, you can come and, and, and get the bread and get the cup. We just ask that you've placed your faith in Christ, that you actually believe the thing that we're remembering here, that Jesus died for you and made the way for you to be made right with him and have life in him. If you believe that, then the communion table is open to you. And we take communion each Sunday because it's a way to remember why we are who we are. And guys, again, this great truth that we're the children of God is completely because God the Son came to be our propitiation, to pay our our penalty in full. That he's the manifestation, that he is what has made it obvious, the manifestation of God's love. He's made God's love obvious and clear to us when he, Jesus, had his body broken and his blood spilled. That through his death and his resurrection, we could be brought in and become the children of God. So as you take this, rejoice. Because this, what we're remembering when we take communion, is what makes God's love for us obvious. And because he's done this, we're the children of God. Let me pray, and then let's spend some time praising him for who he is and what he's done. Father, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. And it's an amazing truth. Father, you worked, the Son worked, the Spirit worked to bring us into the family of God, to make us born of God, to be the children of God, that we would know that we're the beloved sons and daughters of you, made possible because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. God, thank you for loving and serving us in light of who you are, not because of who we are. God, would you bring these truths home to us? Would we walk around with our heads held high no matter what's going on this week because we are living in light of the truth that we are the beloved children of God because you've loved and served us. And as we take communion, may we remember that and more fully believe it. For your glory, God, for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.